Hi, Scott and John here. Yeah, folks, the world is fast approaching the end game, and we are trying to expose the upcoming deception before time runs out. We want to make this a full-time goal, and we need your support to fight the satanic global elite. So here's how you can help. Subscribe to the new Bible Mysteries Premium Podcast to listen to every episode ad-free. Plus, get full access to our special guest interviews and special events, downloadable show notes, our Bible Mysteries monthly newsletter, and access to a new community forum. Sure. So just go to BibleMysteries.Supercast.com or you can click the uh, link in the show notes to get started today. Thanks again. Welcome to Bible Mysteries. You're listening to Episode 102, Interview with Timothy Alberino, Part 1. What if there are secrets in the Bible the world doesn't want you to know? Are you ready to take the red pill? Now here are your hosts, Scott and John. Hello and welcome once again to Bible Mysteries Podcast. We are the program that tells you the things in the Bible the world doesn't want you to know. And my very special guest today is Timothy Alberino. Uh, he is known as the modern day Indiana Jones. Timothy is a consummate explorer. His inquisitive mind and insatiable appetite for adventure have led him all over the planet in search of lost cities, lost civilizations, hidden treasures, and legendary creatures. He is also an avid researcher and published author whose scholarly pursuits are as daring as his expeditions. Timothy has garnered an expansive knowledge base that enables him to dissertate with authority on a wide variety of esoteric topics, including theories on alternative history, ancient mythologies, megalithic architecture, giants, Bigfoot, and other cryptids. UFOs and alien abduction, transhumanism and emerging technologies, occult conspiracy, and Christian eschatology. The website is timothyalberino.com. The book is Birthright, The Coming uh, Post-Human Apocalypse and the Usurpation of Adam's Dominion on Planet Earth. Timothy, welcome to Bible Mysteries Podcast. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Well, it is a true privilege for us to be here. I have read your book several times, been fascinated since I first picked it up, And uh, a dear brother in Christ uh, referred you to me, referred this book to me, and I cannot thank him enough. I'm going to give a shout out to John. But um, you have just really opened some insight into some amazing things here. And I'm going to start by simply asking you some questions directly from your book. Uh, So you refer to the angelic beings as the elder race, and they are, in fact, our elder brethren. And you describe them as extraterrestrial in every sense of the word. Uh, why do you think it is that Christianity at large finds this concept hard to accept? And what impact does, uh, I'm going to use your terms, anthropocentric thinking and Christoplatonic thinking have on preventing them from accepting this? Well, it is precisely the anthropocentric perspective that inhibits many Christians, Western Christians, from accepting the concept of extraterrestrials. Um, An anthropocentric perspective is a human-centric perspective. It it envisions the universe uh, as a wheel, and mankind is the hub of the wheel. We are at the center of a wheel, according to the anthropocentric perspective. And all the spokes that connect to the hub of the wheel that are radiating around us are the other characters 
in the story, in our story, in the story of mankind. In other words, all these uh, this other uh, this constellation of characters that we encounter in the scriptures that are non-human are from the anthropocentric perspective ancillary characters in our story and that is the western perspective that is the perspective that most christians have that that we are the center of the universe we are the center the pri the primary protagonists in the story of the universe and so that view prevents many christians from being able to um embrace a larger universe in which other things are going on and, and, and important things have been happening before mankind. That is to say, it makes it difficult for Christians to accept a pre-Adamic context in which significant things are happening. But the, the question is, and this is the question that I grapple with in my book, is the anthropocentric perspective a biblical perspective is it a correct theological perspective according to the scriptures and my answer is an emphatic no it is not in fact the correct perspective is what's called a christocentric perspective and this is clear in both the old testament and the new testament and a christocentric perspective is a christ-centered perspective a perspective that centers on the Son of God. In other words, imagining this wheel again, the hub of the wheel is not mankind. We can comfortably remove ourselves from the center of that wheel and instead place the Son of God squarely in the center of the universe. He is the purpose of the universe, the primary protagonist in the story of creation. We are the ancillary characters in his story. And uh, the, the Bible is very clear about this, especially Paul uh, and John make this abundantly evident that that all things were created by him and through him and for him according to colossians 115 and Amen. so christ is the center of all things not mankind and when you and when you envision when you ima imagine uh the son of god at the center of that wheel so to speak then there could be a host of other characters, a constellation of characters in his story, and we are one of those characters. And so what it does is it, it expands the universe, and it, it broadens our perspective, and creation is no longer about us. We are a part of creation. We are members in the family of God, or we're supposed to be. We were supposed to be members in the family of God and of course have become sundered from that family. But we, we were not the only members in that family. And uh, from the Christocentric perspective, it is quite easy to embrace the idea of extraterrestrials. In fact, extraterrestrials are presumed in the biblical paradigm. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. I, I think Tim that the, um, this, this anthropocentric perspective came about really to adulterate the truth of scripture. And it took our eyes away from the spiritual realm, the spiritual truth. Uh, and, and I, fortunately, I think uh, other believers uh, with the help of yourself and other authors are coming to a better understanding of this. Um, but let's talk about these other players, uh, these, uh, these ancient uh, characters, if you will. Uh, you state that the terrestrial realm is the domain of the human race for now, that it was given to man. 
but there are other realms more ancient than the earth, which are governed by the lords, uh, if you will, of the kings of the elder race. Are you referring only to a spiritual dimension or to other planets in our known universe? I don't know what a spiritual dimension is. Um, we cannot conceive uh, of another dimension. Our brains, it is impossible for our brains to contemplate another spatial dimension. We can't do it. Our brains think in the three uh, spatial dimensions plus one of time. And so we throw the word dimensions around as if we, as if it's something that is very familiar to us, that we completely <laughs> understand, when in reality, nobody has ever seen another dimension. We don't know what another dimension looks like. And again, we can't even contemplate, uh, conceptualize, uh, let's call it a fourth dimension. Um, and so I find that, it, I find it interesting that so many Christians will readily talk about dimensions, again, which we cannot conceptualize uh, right. as it pertains to angels or demons or whatever. And then at the same time, totally disregard the planets that we can see with our eyeballs, that we can see clearly through telescopes. Um, and so we embrace dimensions which we cannot see and we disregard the planets that we can. And it makes Good no point. sense to me. It makes no sense. If we live on a planet, and we do, um, that is full of life and created to be inhabited, then why should we not then consider that other planets were also created to be inhabited, perhaps even the planets in our solar system at one time were teeming with life? There is nothing whatsoever anti-biblical about that concept, whatsoever. And... Uh, you know, sometimes I feel like we, we, we constrain the creative impulses of the maker uh, as if we yeah. can understand his mind and as if we can limit, we, can, we feel like we have the right to limit what he is allowed to create. But he might have created a whole host of other places before the earth was inhabited. In fact, there is a place called the kingdom of heaven. And people like to spiritualize the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that's that's a spiritual it's a spiritual concept. And then they'll say, Well, the kingdom of heaven is within you, but that's a mistranslation. That's not a good translation of what Christ said. Christ said, The kingdom of heaven is in your midst, not within you, but in your midst. The kingdom was in the midst of the people that Christ was talking to, because Jesus is the king, and wherever he went, there was the kingdom. And so um, yeah. And when the disciples went out and said, the kingdom is coming to you, it was because Jesus was coming behind them. Jesus was following behind them. He was coming. Uh, he was visiting the villages that he sent the disciples. He sent the disciples ahead to announce that the kingdom was coming. Why was the kingdom coming? Because the king himself was coming. And wherever the king is, there is the kingdom. But the kingdom has locality also. It is a place and it is a civilization. It has a standing army. It has couriers and courtiers and judges. And, and it has uh, all the implements of a civilization. And it has locality. And um, we, it's, it, it has been a, a, popular, a popular way of thinking about the kingdom of heaven for centuries in the West has been to, to spiritualize it, to think about it as a spiritual kingdom 
and it's a spiritual place. It's an ethereal realm. But again, uh, we are thinking about the kingdom in terms that are uh, that are um, difficult, if not impossible, for us to contemplate, to conceptualize with our brains. Uh, whereas when Jesus, when the king himself walked among us, he was teaching us about the kingdom in very practical, tangible ways with parables and relating the kingdom to what we're familiar with on earth. And the reason why he was doing that was because the kingdom is like what we're familiar with on earth. That's the yeah. reason. It's very much like what, what, what we understand about civilization and about society because our civilization and our society is inherited. We inherited it from somebody else. And I would say that we inherited our civilization and our society from what I, what I call the elder race in my book. And the reason why I call them the elder race is because elder signifies older and race because how else should we describe them if not a race? And of course, I'm referring to this angelic civilization, this angelic, we can call it a species that mankind that, uh, that uh, we encounter in the biblical narrative. And these are certainly extraterrestrial beings who are not human, but are very much like us. Rather, we are very much like them. Yeah, very much like them. Uh, as uh, as you mentioned in, in your book, and you reference that angel is, is not there. What they are, it is a title for something that they do. But they are, in fact, the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, so created to be uh, right. whatever the Lord wanted them to be, but far uh, far earlier than we were. And uh, you just referenced the, the, the armies, the courtiers, the officers of this civilization. And, and you point out that the Lord of hosts is the Lord of armies. And it means the right. Lord of armies. Uh, Bible evidence and even the natural universe, as you mentioned, our solar system, uh, seem to indicate an ages old conflict of war and rebellion between battling factions of the elder race. Do you think that, the, and you mentioned this, I'm going to let you expound on this. Do you think the planets of our solar system were once habitable realms that were destroyed in this ensuing chaos? Or possibly? Yes, I think, I think that the solar system, that the planets in our solar system were created to be inhabited. And we, you know, we look at them today and what we see is utter desolation. In fact, between Mars and Jupiter, we have a, a meteor, we have a uh, asteroid belt. Um, and it's a debris field. And uh, many uh, astronomers have postulated and astrophysicists that there was a planet there. That that is the residue of a planet that exploded, that was destroyed at some point uh, long ago. And, uh, and I happen to concur with that view. And I believe that the Bible makes reference to that planet. And it, and it does so in a very... Um, it does so in a very indirect way, a shadowy way, and, and I believe it, it references the planet as Rahab in, in the Bible and, uh, and, um, and other planets as well, including Miros. And I talk about that in the book. It's a very complex subject. But, um, it, you know, we now know that uh, Venus was once inhabitable. And, of course, Venus is closer to the sun than the Earth. And so um, we... The, 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 the popular contention today is that the Earth is in the Goldilocks zone. Only the Earth is in the Goldilocks zone. And that Goldilocks zone is, of course, in reference to the Goldilocks story where her, 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 the porridge that she chose to 
eat was not too cold and not too hot. And that's what the Goldilocks zone kind of means. It's we're right, right. exactly positioned uh, in the solar system so that we're, 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 we're close enough to the sun to be warm, but not too far away so that we're, you know, it's, we're frozen wasteland. And, and we have, of course, an abundance of water on the planet. So um, it is uh, conducive to life. And so we have, and, and, and Christians have adopted this view. So we have this view of planet Earth that it's just in the right position and only the Earth is in the right position to support life. Well, there's a couple of things that we need to think about. Um, first of all, it's possible that the other planets in our solar system were also once in the Goldilocks zone. Um, but, but some kind of an explosion or some kind of a cataclysm threw them out of orbit. Um, and of course, the explosion of a planet between Mars and Jupiter would, could have done that. Or alternatively, the composition of the atmosphere and of the molten cores of these planets could have been such that that it, it, it would allow for um, it would allow for life-sustaining climates on these planets, regardless of their distance from the sun. For example. Uh, Venus closer to the sun might have an atmospheric composition that filters out a lot more of that the sun's radiation and and creates maybe a more of a cooling effect on the planet and 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 um, and also um, uh, the planets that are further away like Mars maybe at one time had a a an atmosphere that was uh, conductive to the su to sunlight and 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 uh, increased the amount of of uh, sun radiation, solar radiation on the planet. And also, it's possible that the, the, the cores of these planets were different temperatures. Mars, even though today it's a frozen wasteland because the atmosphere is basically gone, might have had a hotter core. And, and heat could have effused from the, from the core of the planet up through the ground and created a wow. greenhouse effect in the atmosphere. I mean, so, there are so many possibilities. And all we tend to think about is that Goldilocks zone and think about the conditions on Earth. But the conditions on other, other planets do not have to match the conditions on Earth in order to be inhabitable. God could have created different environments that were inhabitable um, based on the conditions of each one of those planets, based, again, on the composition of their atmosphere, on the, the heat of the, of the interior of the planet, and so forth. So um, I think we need to expand our thinking. And to me, it's, it's, it's pretty evident that the solar system at one time in the distant past was, in fact, inhabited until something happened, some kind of a cataclysmic event that absolutely wrecked the solar system. I think the Bible alludes to this event, and I believe that mankind was created in the aftermath of this event. And it, and it makes a whole lot of sense when you look at the, the biblical narrative from beginning to end, and and you and you and you place man in his proper place again, not at the center of the wheel, but Christ is the center. The Son of God is the center. We are ancillary characters in His story. We appeared in the procession of time. In other words, things happened before we showed up. And when we showed yeah. up, there was a distinct purpose for us. And we had our place in the universe. And we were, um, we were created and designed for something very particular. And, and that is yeah. to fellowship in the family of God, to fellowship with the Father, and to govern the earth. This realm that was, in my opinion, renewed 
I think we see a renewal of the earth in the beginning, the opening chapters of Genesis, as opposed to its primal creation. Oh, that, that is absolutely what I have been teaching for years now, uh, that, um, that Genesis chapter 1, um, verse 2, begins the renovation of a destroyed planet, and that the cataclysmic wars and, and destruction that you just referred to uh, occurred uh, in the ancient past. In fact, um, it, you bring such a refreshing perspective to it because while I was focusing on the world that was and a civilization on the planet before Adam was even created on the basis of Job 38 and the angels shouting for joy, I never even opened my mind to think about the other planets uh, in the same, <laughs> included in the same thing. So that was such a refreshing and fascinating perspective. Um, and, and it brings me to a, another thought that um, you, I'm, I'm fascinated by your view of the story of the prodigal son in scripture and how you see that as being a type of the reunification of the sons of Adam, if I could use that term, mm -hmm. with the elder race. How, how did right. you come to see the older brother in the story as the type of the angelic beings or the elder race uh, being faithful to the father? Well, there's a number of ways that you can interpret the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. But um, I think in the context of the other parables, the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the other parables that, that it's sort of couched in, the parable of the prodigal son, because it's, it's, Jesus tells that parable within the, in the midst of a series of parables. I think yeah. it's evident that he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, the father's house. And uh, there's a lot of, uh, I think that it's this, by far the strongest interpretation of the parable of the prodigal son, of the prodigal son, although there are others. But, in the parable of the prodigal son, it's important to recognize that we're talking about that the parable begins in the father's house. And when Jesus is referencing the father, most of the time in his parables and when he talked openly to the people, he was referring to the heavenly father, our heavenly father, especially as it pertains to the father's house. Um, and so right. the parable opens up in this, in this, house and i believe it's it's a royal house it's an estate it's a large estate and the father mm -hmm. there's a father and he has two sons and this is a very important concept because these two sons of the father in the father's estate are co-inheritors of their father's estate they're co-inheritors right. and there's an older brother and there's a younger brother and of course the younger brother is the prodigal son and the younger brother says to his father Father, give me my inheritance now. In other words, um, and that would have been, you know, whatever, whatever sheep and goats and cows and whatever other kind of uh, treasure and valuables would have been his part of his inheritance. Again, that right. he shared with his older brother. So his older brother did not ask for the inheritance yet, but the younger brother did. And, uh, and the father uh, agreed and he gave his son his portion of the inheritance of the father's estate. And, and, of course, we all know what happens. The prodigal son goes and he, and he squanders his inheritance on wild living. And he, he, he wastes his money on prostitutes and, and whatever else uh, wild living would have constituted in, in that time. And he ends up spending all of his money and becoming destitute. And so destitute, in fact, that he becomes indentured to a swineherd. And, and indentured means indentured servitude which means when you run out of money you can you can sort of um 
lend yourself as a slave uh, or as a servant, not necessarily as a slave, but as a servant to someone. And then, sure. uh, and that's called indentured servitude. And that, that, that actually even was happening in the United States uh, it, it, up until the modern, modern times. And so this was a way that you could, that you could pay off your debt. Um, and so he became indentured, an indentured servant or slave to a swineherd. And of course, the swineherd is an archetype of Satan. And he was so destitute, so impoverished that he, he, he had to eat the slop of the pigs. So he had to tend to the pigs and his food was what the pigs were eating. He had to eat the slop of pigs because again, he had squandered his inheritance. And remember this, he was a son in the father's house. And this is a right. royal estate. This is not a little cottage. This is a royal estate. He was a son in the father's house. He squandered his inheritance. And also a famine came on the land. And so it was, it was compounded. His destitution um, was compounded by a famine. And so here he's in this, this pitiable state, this miserable state. And it's important what happens to the prodigal son because he recognizes his depravity. This is very important because this is a picture of repentance and, mm -hmm. and salvation. He recognizes the depravity of his condition. And he remembers how well he had it in his father's house compared to, to, compared to his destitution. He's filthy. He's, he's unwashed. He's eating the slop of pigs. He has no money. He's a slave to the swineherd. And so he, 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 he comes up with this scheme that he's going to go back to the father and he's going to beg the father to receive him back, not, not as a son. He doesn't deserve to be a son anymore. He blew that, right? He squandered yeah. his inheritance. He's not going to go back as a son. Instead, he's going to go back and beg his father that he might be received back as a lowly servant, just make me a servant in your house because he remembered that the, even the servants in his father's house were living much better than he was currently in his depravity. And so he goes back to the father's house uh, with this in mind, with this, with this plan in mind. And, and he's very likely thinking that, and of course I'm sort of enlarging on the parable. And sure. this, is, this is a parable of, of Jesus, as we all know. Jesus is telling this parable. And so the prodigal son is going back home and, and he's probably thinking that his father is going to be exceedingly angry with him. He blew his inheritance. He's filthy. He, he went out and, 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 and was sleeping with prostitutes and, and, and probably, you know, getting drunk and wasting his money on gambling and, and, and whatever else constitutes wild living. And right. his father's going to be, very displeased with him and 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 if he's lucky his father will receive him back as a servant right so mm -hmm. as he's approaching of course what is the father doing he's waiting for him the father mm -hmm. is waiting at the door for his son to return eagerly waiting for the return of his son and when he sees him afar off he runs out to meet him and the son probably sees his father, the prodigal son sees his father running to him. And he's thinking, oh, he's, he's going to come and beat me with a rod and, and cast me away, <laughs> right? Instead, the father falls on his neck, embraces him, begins to kiss him and hug him. Yeah. 
And you can imagine the prodigal son, his shock and disbelief that the father is embracing him rather than slapping him in the face and sending him away. He's kissing his neck and, and probably weeping that, he, that his son has returned. And his son is about to offer this proposition to the father, take me back as a lowly servant. But what does the father say? He says to his servants, quick, quick, bring new clothes for him. Put, new sa put sandals on his feet right. and a ring on his finger, right? Now, it's important to understand that back in the ancient world, servants rarely wore sandals, wore shoes. That was a sign of a slave. One of the signatures of a slave was that they didn't wear sh shoes. Mm. And, and uh, not in every case, but in, but in a lot of cases, even the Roman Empire, uh, which was the time, which was the the era in which Christ is telling this story, it was, it was uncommon for servants to wear sho shoes. Okay. Um, a, slide, a, a sign of a servant, a slave, was that they usually went barefoot. And so, and so right away he's saying, put new robes on him, shod his feet with sandals, and, and, and put a ring on his finger. And, and that, of course, the, the new clothes represent the righteousness of Christ, the resurrection, mm -hmm. the, the, the yeah. shoes... On his the sandals on his feet, sonship, and and the ring on his finger, sonship. That's the seal of the royal house, and so this prodigal son is not being brought back into the family as a servant, as he imagined. Rather, he's being fully reinducted as a son, and mm. the father says, "Kill the fat, the fatted calf. Let's have a feast and celebrate." Um, and so of course. He ushers the son into the house and the servants begin to prepare a feast and they slaughter the fatted calf and they, and they, they're, they're playing music and they're dancing. And the older son, the older son who's still, who's in the field. So the older son is in the father's estate. He's out in the field working for the father. He hears the music. He hears the clamor coming from the house and he calls a servant and says, what's going on? And the servant says, your brother has returned. And so the father is basically throwing a feast for him. And the, and the older son goes to, to, into the house to see what's going on. And he goes to his father and, he, and basically he says, what are you doing? Why are you throwing this, 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 this brother of mine, this younger brother who went out and wasted his, his, his portion of our inheritance with prostitutes and drunkenness and wild living, and now you're celebrating him for coming back. Why are you doing this? He says, and Jesus even uh, says that the, the, this older brother remarks, you never killed a fatted calf for me so that me and my friends can celebrate. And I've always been here with you. I've been faithful to right. you. You've never done this for me, right? And, and the father's reply is the heart of the gospel. He says, because this, this brother of yours was lost and has been found again. He was dead and is alive. And so, and, and, and so this, this, is, this is the gospel that's being presented Amen. by Christ. And it's the gospel in a profound way that most Christians don't think about. But it's right there in the story of the prodigal son. So... Hi, we hope you're enjoying the podcast, but I want to take a moment to remind you of something very important. There are secrets in the Bible the world doesn't want you to know. And the world is fast approaching the end game, and we want to expose the coming deception before time runs out. 
freedom of speech is under attack and evil elements within governments and multinational corporations are trying to prevent you from learning the truth. Scott and I are being censored by social media platforms as we speak. This is true, so you can help us use the satanic global elite's own tools against them. Subscribe to Bible Mysteries Premium Podcast so the controlled media can't shut us down. We can use our own platforms to help expose them and keep you informed. But to do that, we need your support. Help us to go full-time with Bible Mysteries. Just $7 a month gives you every current episode ad-free without these annoying appeals. You also get full access to our special guest interviews and special events, downloadable show notes, our Bible Mysteries monthly newsletter, and access to the community forum where we answer your questions. Just go to BibleMysteries.Supercast.com to help us stop the assault on Christianity and free speech. And don't forget, you can always donate any amount to support us at utbnow.com. These gifts are tax deductible. Thanks again, and here's the show. The older brother, in my opinion, I think there's a lot of scriptural basis to back this up. The older brother are the angels. They're the angels. And... They're the, this faction that pre-existed mankind. People say, what do you mean a faction that pre-existed? You just mentioned it in Job. The sons of God, the Benai Elohim, the sons right. of God. They're not called angels there. They're called the sons of God in the book of Job. Shouted for joy when the earth yeah. was created, when the foundations of the earth were laid. Okay. So we have sons of God before mankind was created. And of course, Adam was created to be, according to the genealogy of Jesus of Nazareth, a son of God. So there were sons of God before this other son of God was created. When you, the Bible does not use this terminology whimsically. These terms are not just... uh, are not incidental. These terms, sons of God uh, and brothers and all of these, these familial terms are intentional. They're intentional because we're talking about a family. And this is at the heart of the gospel that most Christians don't even realize. There's a family, there's a royal family, a divine family. And we were supposed to be part of it, but we are the prodigal son. Adam is the prodigal son in that parable. And by extension, all of us who are his offspring, we are the prodigal son. We were divorced from the family. We, we wasted our inheritance and we became indentured to Satan, to the swineherd. And that's why Christ had to redeem us. Because the word redeem means to purchase back. In other words, in other words, we belonged to the Father, but then we became by our by our own uh, choice, just like the prodigal son. We became indentured to Satan, enslaved to the swineherd, and so mm-hmm. we had to be purchased back from the swineherd. That's the first thing that had to happen. That's why in Revelation, in the Song of the Lamb, they, they, they sing, you purchased men by your blood. You purchased men for God. And so we had to be redeemed. And, and this, is, this is, most believers, in my opinion, only understand parts of the gospel, but have not 
have not comprehended the totality of the gospel. Because yeah. most Christians think it's just about being saved from hell. No, it's about going back into the family where we belong. It's yes. going back into the Father's house. And so Christ redeems us from the swineherd by his blood. We're redeemed so that we might be reconciled. And the word reconcile means to be brought back into fellowship and friendship. Because what does the Bible, what does the New Testament teach? We, are, we were enemies of God. So we are born into a condition of enmity with God. That's the human condition. Sin, death, enmity with God, indentured to the swineherd. So we're redeemed from the swineherd so that we might be reconciled to the Father, so that we might be restored to everything that was lost in Adam. Everything that was lost in Adam is, is restored in the second Adam, in Jesus. And so Amen. the gospel of Christ is we're being redeemed from the swineherd, and the price of our redemption was the blood of the Son of God, redeemed from the swineherd, reconciled to the Father, brought back into the family, and restored, just like the prodigal son, not brought back into servants, but restored, completely restored to sonship in the Father's house. And, and sonship like the older brother, the elder race, the angelic right. race. And that's evident because Jesus says, and I can't remember exactly the verse here, but remember when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and I, I apologize for being long-winded here, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, <clears throat> or I, I believe in, in this particular case, it was the Pharisees who, who um, presented this, this paradox to, to, to Jesus to try and trip him up as they were always trying to do. Right. And they said, and they said there was a woman who had, you know, seven husbands. <clears throat> the story to Jesus, she, she had these husbands and they each died consecutively. And, and so when she dies and goes to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? And they tried to, to catch Jesus in this, in, as, again, as they always tried to catch him in these, in these, in these, uh, these, paradoxes that they would present him with and jesus said no you don't understand the the children of heaven neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels nor can they die anymore because they are like the angels the other sons of god and then right. he says this because they are sons of god referring to those who 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 are going to heaven, um, man, uh, among men. He says they, they, they are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Sons right. of God being sons of the resurrection. In other words, what he was saying, and I, of course, was paraphrasing, when you die, you're going to be like the other sons of God, the other sons of God who are still in the Father's house. What is going to effectuate this this transformation into sons of God, the resurrection, being right. sons of the resurrection. So the resurrection is represented in the parable of the prodigal son. That's the clothes, the new clothes that are put on him. That's symbolic of the resurrection. Of course, that's the righteousness of Christ being resurrected because, of course, we know that if we believe in him and we die believing in him, so shall we also be raised with him.
And so Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection, and we will be like him. We will be sons of God in the Father's house, like Adam. Like Adam was a son of God. And so this is, this is about the gospel of Christ isn't about evading hell. That's not the proper way to think about the gospel. The gospel is about being restored to the family of God, to everything that was lost in Adam. And what does Jesus say on the eve of the crucifixion? Here he's sitting with his disciples after celebrating Passover. On the eve of the crucifixion, they're reclining at the table. And Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. Boom, he's he's evoking the parable of the prodigal son, which he already told to his disciples. He's evoking the parable of the prodigal son in my father's house. Remember that house that I talked to you about, the parable, the prodigal son, the father's house. In my father's house are many rooms. In other words, there's a family there. There's many rooms. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and get you so that you may be where, where I am. And of course, uh, one of the disciples said, how do we, we don't know. And he said, and you know the way. And he said, and you know the way to, right. to where I'm going. And they said, we don't know, teach us. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so um, Jesus is evoking the parable of the prodigal son. So it's him. It's the son of God who brings us back. We are the prodigal son, but Christ brings us back. He redeems us from the swine herd and he ushers us back. He leads us back into his father's house as full-fledged sons of God again. But that sonship is only effectuated through the resurrection. We must be resurrected to be restored to sonship in the father's house. And, 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 and one final thought on this, and this is where I break with a, a lot of uh, uh, Christians is that that resurrection, because we've belitt- we belittled this concept because we've misunderstood it. It's been filtered through Western theology. And I think we've lost some of this. The, yeah. that, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection and restoration into the father's house is what Jesus meant when he said that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. To go back into the father's house as a son, you literally must be born again. And being born again is not experiential. It's not it's not that your life was changed and that, you know, you were, you were once a sinner and now you're serving the Lord. That's not being born again. That's a transformation that's happening, that the, that the Spirit of God is working in your life and you're conforming to uh, the gospel of Christ and to uh, comportment that is, um, that is uh, expected of a believer. But being born again is dying and being resurrected, reset to the blueprint of Adam, resurrected and going back into the father's house. That is what it means to be born again. And, and, and that was the hope of every believer in the ancient church was the resurrection, was the hope of the gospel. That's why Paul says if there was no resurrection, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are the most to be pitied among men because we have yeah. no hope. Well, I'll tell you, I could not agree more with you. 
No, I listen. It was fascinating to just hear you talk because everything you were saying in my heart, I'm just amening. I absolutely agree with you that born again is a misunderstood concept. It is born again from the dead. It is all time. Exactly. And that, that's, that's what, the whole that's point of baptism is. That's what baptism is. See, baptism yeah. isn't just some um, isn't just something that Christians do to be members of a church. No, no. Baptism is identifying with the death of Christ, that you are going to die believing in Christ. And just like him, you are going to be raised again. And reset, you're going to, uh, you're sharing in his death, as the writers of the New Testament say, so that you might also share in his resurrection from the dead and eternal life. So we're identifying in baptism with, with what's the heart of the gospel, the resurrection. It is appointed for men to die. And we will die. There's only a small group of people who won't. They'll be transformed yes. in the twinkling of an eye. They will also be resurrected, but maybe in a different way than us because they're not going to die, but they're still Correct. going to be transformed. And yep. so it's that transformation. We have to become sons of the resurrection in order to qualify for sonship in the family of God. And that is why the hope of the believer is not in having a better life now. It's not in, in, in you know, just being a better person and 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 there's so many christians who go around oh i'm a son of god and this and that no we put our hope in the resurrection running our race to the end believing in christ until the moment we draw our last breath with the hope of the resurrection and restoration into the family of god and there is nothing more exciting than the prospect than the prospect that we are going to be returned and restored to the fellowship of mm. Eden. And Amen. Eden is symbolic of the Father's house. Restored to fellowship with the Father. We were created to fellowship with the maker of the universe and, right. and with our older siblings. Absolutely. Yeah, and undergirding all of this, Tim, seems to be the legal contractual language of the gospel that, that's right there in front of our eyes if we would just see it. We're seeing terms like you mentioned, redemption, uh, uh, payment, uh, to buy back, to purchase. We're seeing inheritance, that heavenly city, that my father's house. Uh, in, in every way, shape, and form, we're seeing God operating in a legal manner. And, and I would argue, and I think whether you implicitly say it in your book, birthright or not, that not only did Christ need to die for that redemption and that purchase to take place to bring us back into the family and restore us, as you stated, but that in order for him to be the legal claimant to the king of the earth, he had to be born into the same human condition, the pre-incarnate son, immaculate, uh, 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 become uh, uh, like man for the purpose of dying, but also for the purpose of claiming the title. Would you agree Absolutely. that he needed to, to be able to say that since the birthright was given to man? That's right. The Bible explicitly states, and it's important that people understand that this is in a post-flood context. In other words, it's after the flood of Noah. It's in the book of Psalms. The Bible ex explicitly states that the heavens, even the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the sons of men or the sons Amen. of Adam. 
So the earth has been bequeathed. The dominion of the earth was bequeathed to Adam and he never lost it. He did not lose the dominion of earth at the fall. Right. He did not lose the domin his dominion. He never lost it. The only way that mankind can lose dominion of the earth is if we become something other than the offspring of Adam, is if we lose our humanity. If we are no longer mankind, then we, then we don't have a right to the, we lose our birthright. We no longer have a claim uh, to the deed of the earth. And that is exactly what happens in the book of Revelation at the end. Um, but uh, so, so Christ was born into the line of Adam. He was born as a man in order to redeem mankind, but also in order to restore our dominion at the end of the age. And that's, uh, that's uh, what unfolds, it, precisely what unfolds at the end of the age. And so, you know, and just, just to, to sort of highlight that, there's a, there's a perplexing scene in the book of Revelation that I always, ever since I was a kid, always perplexed me. It always confused me. I, I did not understand this scene. Until, until, you know, uh, years and years ago when I was living in the, in the Amazon, literally in the, in the Amazon jungle. And it just sort of, it just sort of struck me like a bolt of lightning. And it's the scene in which John is in heaven and he's having this vision of heaven. And, and there's, there's, he sees the father sitting on the throne and he has a scroll in his right hand. And there's a, and an angel declares, who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? And, and nobody, the Bible says, nobody was found worthy in heaven or on earth to open, to take the scroll and open its seals. And then it says, John says, and I wept much. Yes. I wept greatly, grievously. So John then begins to weep. Why is he weeping over this scroll? It never made any sense. Here's a scroll in the father's hands. Who's worthy to take it? Nobody is found worthy. And John begins to weep profusely over this scroll. Yeah. And I always thought, why? Why is he weeping over a scroll? After everything he's seen in these visions, he didn't weep over the dragon and the woman and all these other things. He didn't weep over, these, over the, the rise of the beast and the persecution of the saints, but he's weeping over a scroll. Yeah. And, and it never made any sense to me until I realized that that scroll is the deed of the earth. And it represents the dominion of mankind that was given to Adam and nobody can reclaim it. There's nobody in heaven or on earth. And the reason why is because at the end of the age, not everyone, but the majority of mankind would have transitioned, will have transitioned into a post-human condition. No yes. longer human. No longer able to claim the birthright of Adam. The earth will be in a post-human apocalypse, a post-human dystopia at the end of the age. And, and, and there's always going to be a remnant of humans left, but not enough to claim dominion of the earth from the beast, from the Antichrist and his, and his armies. And by the way, the Antichrist is, in my opinion, going to be a, a human hybrid. So he's going to be human enough to claim the birthright himself. And that's a long, complicated, convoluted subject. But 
But back to this vision. I, I agree with you on that. So, so John is weeping. Nobody's able to take, to, to take dominion, to restore dominion of the earth and rectify this dystopian, nightmarish uh, situation unfolding on, on the planet. But the angel, but, but the angel tells, John, tells John, do not weep. Do not weep. And I'm paraphrasing. There is one who can take the scroll. The, yes. the Lamb of God has, has, uh, is able. He is worthy to take the scroll. And so even though, even if there's, there's not a single human being left on the earth, there is still a son of man, a son of Adam, seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is, has all the authority. He is worthy to take the deed of Adam, being a son of Adam, to take the deed, to take the scroll and to break its seals. And the breaking of those seals is, is destruction on the empire of the beast and the reclaiming of the earth for the offspring of Adam. He is worthy yeah. to take the scroll and break its seals because precisely because he is a son of Adam. Jesus says, all authority was given to me in heaven and on earth. In heaven, because he is the son of God. And as such, he has all authority in heaven. On earth, because he is the son of Adam. And he has legal authority to govern on earth as the son of Adam. And he had to become a man in order to qualify for the birthright of Adam, to, to, to inherit the birthright of Adam, and to reclaim the earth for the offspring of Adam at the end of the age. Because that's what Jesus does. He reclaims the earth for the offspring of Adam, and he becomes the king. He is the second Adam. He, he accomplishes everything that Adam failed to do. He rectifies the purpose and the calling of mankind. And, and he does so perfectly, in perfect uh, submission to his father at the end of the age. And he governs from the throne of his ancestor, David. And, and, and it's, 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 uh, it's a momentous victory at the end because he returns at Armageddon and he vanquishes the beast. And I believe his inhuman army that's gathered at Armageddon, not to make war on Israel, by the way, to make war on God. That's what Armageddon Amen. is, war on God. Hey, thanks for listening today. If you'd like to hear part two of my interview with Timothy Alberino, you can subscribe to Bible Mysteries Premium Podcast at biblemysteries.supercast.com or just go to utbnow.com to learn more. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard, share it with a friend. If you want to learn more, you can go to Unlock the Bible Now. That's utbnow.com. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to Bible Mysteries Premium Podcast. You can even gift a subscription to a friend. That's right. Remember, just go to BibleMysteries.Supercast.com to join and help us expose the satanic global elite, or make a tax-deductible donation at utbnow.com. We need your help to fight the global censorship of the truth. Thanks for your support.